If you have your Bibles, you should open them to the book of Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel chapter 2. Last week we began a study in the book of Ezekiel. As I mentioned last week, in my 45 years of being a pastor, I've never preached from the book of Ezekiel. And if you read the first chapter, you might say, well, Damon, now I, now I get it, because it, it seems quite difficult. We don't know much about Ezekiel. We do know that he was from the priest caste, if you wish, the, the priestly line. He was 30 years old when he received these visions and words from the Lord. Um, this vision that we find in actually chapters 1, 2, and 3 are part of his call to be a prophet. You see, he was born into the line of the priest. You can't be born into a line of prophets. You must have a special calling from God. And one of the problems, as I mentioned last week, someone could just say, I'm a prophet. God's called me to be a prophet. And, and who is there to verify that or check it out? Um, how do we know if somebody is, in fact, a true prophet? Well, we have three chapters here of Ezekiel that give us his credentials, that in fact he is someone called by God to be a prophet. And it's sort of unusual because he's called by God to be a prophet, not in the promised land, not in the holy land, but in Babylon, in the capital of the pagans. So there might be some who would question whether or not he was legitimately a prophet. We're given three chapters to show us that in fact he was. In chapter 1, God begins to reveal himself to Ezekiel, not by propositions about his character, but in a personal encounter, and one which is visually, I would say, overwhelming. If you read chapter 1 again, you just see how, how shocking it must have been to him, and trying to make sense of it all these centuries later is still difficult for us. One thing I mentioned last week, and this is important, that when you read the prophetic books, they usually give us uh, the geography, where it takes place, the vision, and uh, the dating about you know, the reign of such and such a king. Um, in the first verse of this book, we are given that. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Ezekiel's 30 years old, and he is by the Kibar River, which is a major tributary off the Euphrates River. Um, oftentimes, I think we think of someone who has a vision as like it's ahistorical, no space or time, it's just this mystical experience that happens. But we find in Scripture that it is, in fact, very much rooted in history. In order for the truth to be firmly established, it must be rooted in history. Just quickly, I want to point out, uh, he saw four living creatures, and one commentator has called them four grotesque living creatures. Um, we, we read of similar creatures in Revelation chapter 4. In fact, if you look at Ezekiel and Revelation, at least in the first few chapters, uh, they very much parallel uh, experience. These creatures seem to have human bodies. They have four faces, four wings, they are not used for flying, but they, in fact, support the platform or the expanse where the throne of the Lord is found. They have four faces. One face is human, one is lion, one is ox, one is eagle. 
These represent the highest order, if you wish, of God's created uh, beings. Man bears the image of God. Lion is king among the wild animals. The oxen is among domesticated animals and the eagle among the birds of the air. Why these four different things, besides the fact that they are seen as sort of the, at the top of the pecking order in their particular uh, arenas, we see God's majesty, God's strength, his wisdom, and his loftiness. John Calvin wrote that by these beings, by these heads, all creatures, all creatures, creatures in God's creation are represented. The point is that God's glory is seen in his creation. When Isaiah had a vision of the Lord in the temple, uh, we hear this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And these four creatures represent the glory of God. It's fascinating, I mentioned this last week, that he gives us such detail about these grotesque, these weird-looking creatures. And they're holding up this platform on which is the throne of the Lord. And yet he doesn't tell us very much about what the Lord looks like. Um, On the throne was a figure like that of a man. We would want more detail, and why don't we get it? Well, if you look at the last verse of chapter 1, verse number 28... Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. When in the presence of God, the natural reaction is, in fact, to fall on the ground, sometimes as though dead. This, sets, this is a setting for... Ezekiel to receive his commission to prophesy. And it begins with holy fear and awe. This is a mark of a true prophet. Um, A false prophet can chatter about God in a very glib way. He's my buddy. He's my chum. And he can do that because he has never met God. One, in fact, who has had a personal encounter with God will, in fact, be filled with fear and awe holy fear and awe. As I said, this is what we find in Revelation chapter 1 as well, that the Lord Jesus appears to John in the midst of the candlesticks, and John falls face down on the ground. In chapters 2 and 3, we no longer have the visual. That's chapter 1. Now we have the verbal, and this is important, because yes, God appeared, his glory appears and Ezekiel is awestruck, but now there need to be words. It isn't simply the visual that is important. One commentator put it this way, seeing visions of God or even hearing him speak does not make one a prophet. If a prophet's calling takes place as a vision, the sending may occur within the vision. Since a commission involves the giving of instruction, it cannot be done only by sight. Language must intrude. Accordingly, the voice from the throne now speaks intelligibly to Ezekiel, addressing him as son of man, telling him, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. So now we come to chapter two, and this begins the commission. He has been in the presence of God. That's the visual. Now he listens to what God has to say to him. Look at verses one and two. He said to me, son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the spirit came into me and raised me to my feet and I heard him speaking to me. 
the first words spoken to Ezekiel are son of man. What is intended by this? Earlier today we sang Ferris Lord Jesus, son of God and son of man. If you're familiar with the Bible, particularly with the Gospels, you will associate the title Son of Man with Jesus, who is the Messiah. Let me just read to you some verses from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus replied, someone wanted to be his disciple. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then when the man is let down through the, the roof of the house and Jesus heals him, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And then in chapter 12, the question of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then later on, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then in chapter 16, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then finally in chapter 26, when he is on trial before the religious leaders, they said, okay, just tell us, are you the Son of God? He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming in judgment. They're like, okay, you're guilty. What does this mean for Ezekiel? We know Son of Man as a title for Jesus. But now this is what we find for Ezekiel. After all, he wasn't the Messiah. Why is he called the Son of Man? Well, I think there's several things to notice here. In chapter one, we have the majesty of God. In chapter two, Ezekiel is put in his place. He is human. He is the Son of Man. The ESV has a footnote for this. It is literally Son of Adam. He is one who is descended from Adam. He is a human being. In Numbers chapter 23, we read, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. God's not human. Ezekiel is human. We've seen the glory of God in chapter one. Now we see Ezekiel in his humanness. Now, I'm making a lot of this, but let me tell you why. The Son of Man, the title, Son of Man, appears 80 times in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 80 times total. In the book of Ezekiel, the title occurs 93 times. More than the Gospels, Ezekiel is referred to as the Son of Man. It's almost half of the occurrences in all the Bible. So it is of some importance. Ezekiel is a son of man, a son of Adam. It is seen in the fact that he is face down in the presence of God. But then the Lord tells him to stand up. Stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. But as a human being, seemingly, Ezekiel cannot do this. So the Spirit came to me and raised me to my feet. So Ezekiel is not claiming to be some super man, some superhuman who has super strength. He is revealed to be really human. He is the son of Adam. He is the son of man. And when he is faced with the majesty of God, he's on the ground and he can't get up. God says, get up. He can't. It requires the work of God in his life to enable him to stand up. 
So in verse number three, now the commission begins. Look, if you would, at verse three. He said, and here it is again, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. You may recall something I said last week, that one of the themes in this book is the sinfulness of Israel. We will come to this in chapters 12 through 24. You have some people who feel like, yes, we're in exile, we're being punished by God, we deserve this, but enough, okay? We've suffered enough, you know, all the evil we have done, we've been punished enough, it's time for God to let us go back home. There are others who said, yeah, it's not our fault, it's our dad's fault, it's, it's our forefathers. They're the ones who did this, and that's why these things have happened. And it, again, in verse number three, um, they have revolted, their fathers have revolted, and rebelled against God. And then you have the third group who say, we haven't done anything wrong, God's just weak. And so the Babylonian gods were able to overpower him and his people. Here Ezekiel is told to convey God's message to a rebellious people. They are just as rebellious as their ancestors were. Look at verse 4. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. They're rebellious, they are obstinate. Someone who is shameless, someone who is confronted with their sin or what they've done wrong, will not look down to the ground, which would be a natural reaction, but will just sort of look you in the eye as though they have nothing to be ashamed of. And they are stubborn, they refuse to give way. So what? What does this all mean? This is, I think, the primary message in chapters 2 and 3. Ezekiel should have no expectation, zero expectation, that these people will be sympathetic to his message, that they will listen to him, that they will do anything about the message that he speaks to them. Ezekiel's message was to be, this is what the Lord says. It's a mark of a true prophet. True prophet. But the consequence of his message is that there would be no repentance, there would be no belief, they wouldn't even pay attention to him. How would you like to be a prophet and be told, I want you, I'm going to send you out here to rebellious people and they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to repent, they're not going to respond in a positive way to what you have to say. But God says they will know that a prophet is among them. They can ignore what the prophet has to say, but they will know absolutely that Ezekiel is someone sent by God. And then in verse six, Ezekiel is told not to fear. Not once, not twice, but three times. You may recall in the series on fear, I said, the most repeated commandment in the Bible, do not be afraid, do not fear. Most repeated, not love, not anything like that, but do not fear. Verse 6, and you, son of man, there it is again, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you, and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. Like Moses and Jeremiah, who make excuses why they can't do what God has called them to do, Ezekiel's not even given a chance to do that. God, in a sense, just plows through and tells him, this is what you're supposed to do. By the way, in, Ezekiel, uh, in Jeremiah, we read, Ah, sovereign Lord, 
I said, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Ezekiel is told, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid of them, even though they might be like thorns and briars and scorpions. And do not be afraid of what they say or how they look at you. You know, give you the evil eye. Don't. Don't be afraid of that. Why not? Because they are in rebellion against God. They are a rebellious house. Verse number seven, here is the task. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. This is the commission. This is his assignment. Whatever God tells him, he is to speak the words to them. The results are not his concern, whether they listen or fail to listen. In the case of Jeremiah, he was told, they will not listen to you. When you call to them, they will not answer. Not exactly a pep talk, you know, let's go out and get them. Ezekiel, tell them the truth. Um, God basically says, they may listen, they may not, but that is not your concern. Now we have a third dimension to the vision that might be quite unexpected. We've seen the visual, that's chapter one. And then we continue with the verbal where God is speaking to him. But now there is the consumptive, if you wish, or the ingesting. There is a scroll that Ezekiel is told to eat. But first, a word to the Son of Man, verse eight. But you, Son of Man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious house, open your mouth and eat what I give you. So listen and don't be like them. Ezekiel is to be apart from these people. He is not to be rebellious in the way that they are. He is God's prophet. In Isaiah 50, we hear the sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I have not been rebellious. Ezekiel is not to be rebellious. And then he is told, open your mouth and eat what I give you. And what he is to eat is now described. Look, if you would, at verses nine, verse nine of chapter two, all the way to verse number three of chapter three. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you, eat this scroll, then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you, and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Several things stand out here. First of all, nobody eats a scroll. Nobody eats a book. This hand holds out a scroll to him and says, eat this. Well, that, that's not usually what people do with scrolls. Secondly, the scroll had writing on both sides. That doesn't happen either. It's written on the inside, you, know, you roll it up, so that the outside is protected. You don't put words there because they could be rubbed off. And yet this scroll has writing on both sides. And the writing on both sides is lament, mourning, and woe. That's, it's not good news. It is not good news. This doesn't mean, however, 
that Ezekiel's message will only be doom and gloom. It may seem like that until we get later into the book. Um, He eats the scroll and it is as sweet as honey. This also strikes me as strange. I mean, first of all, it's got writing on both sides. But secondly, the writings are lament, mourning, and woe. But they are the words of God. And as such, they are sweetness. They are sweet, even though the words are harsh and they speak of woe that is yet to come. They are sweet. Jeremiah expressed this in chapter 15. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. In Psalm 19, David wrote, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure, altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. Psalm 119, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So in this part of the vision, which begins with the visual and then the verbal, and now he is actually eating, it is in fact sweetness. These are the words of God. But it isn't just that he's supposed to eat and say, well, that was a good meal. He is now supposed to go and speak to the house of Israel. I think we all know that meals can be wonderful times for conversation, even though we're told as children not to eat, not to talk with your mouth full. But here, Ezekiel eats, and then he is to speak. He eats the scroll, and then he is to speak to the house of Israel. I don't think they're two separate acts. It's a continuum. It isn't like, okay, I'm done eating, and now I can speak. It is, as he is eating, he has eaten this, and now he is to speak. It's a natural result from the eating of the scroll. Now the audience, who is he to speak to? Look, if you would, beginning at verse number four of chapter three. He then said to me, son of man, go now to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. You are not being sent to a people of obscure speech and difficult language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of obscure speech and difficult language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I had sent sent you to them, they would have listened to you. The house of Israel is not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hardened and obstinate, but I will make you as unyielding and hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. At this point, it seems like we're getting into like serious repetition. That what's said in verses four through nine what was said in chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. But there is a difference. In chapter 2, Ezekiel is being commissioned. Here in chapter 3, he is being equipped. God is giving him the equipment to carry out his task. At first, it seems as though God is saying, hey, this task of being, it's not that hard. It's not going to be that hard. Because I'm not sending you to foreigners, okay? 
I'm not sending you to people whose language you don't understand and they don't understand you. So I, no, I'm sending you to the house of Israel. You guys speak the same language. It's not a problem. Okay? Um, but in reality, the task is quite difficult. Because God says, if I were sending you to foreigners, they would listen to you. I'm sending you to your fellow Israelites, and they will not listen to you. It would seem that those whose language you don't speak, communication would be difficult. And God's like, no, no, actually, that'll be easier than speaking to the rebellious house of Israel. They will not listen to Ezekiel because they haven't been listening to God. After so many years of persistent deafness to the voice of God through his prophets, do you really think that suddenly now they're going to listen to Ezekiel? No, the pattern seems very well established. Um, they are rebellious. They don't listen to God. They don't listen to his prophets. And they will not listen to Ezekiel. What the Lord offers is to equip Ezekiel. You can't be, in modern language, a snowflake. You can't be weak. Okay? You've got to be tough. In verse 8, I will make you as unyielding and as hardened as they are. You're going to be as hard as they are. Verse 9, I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. This is where a, a wordplay comes, comes into play, if you wish. Um, Ezekiel means literally, God hardens. So Ezekiel is someone that God is hardening for the task of being a prophet to speak to people. We're not going to listen. They're not going to do what he says. Now the concluding words of the vision, verses 10 and 11. And he said to me, Son of man, listen carefully and take to heart all the words I speak to you. Go now to your countrymen in exile and speak to them. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, whether they listen or fail to listen. We've heard this somewhat earlier. Listen carefully and take to heart all the words I speak to you. Now go to your fellow exiles and tell them what I've told you. And you know what? They may listen and they may not. These are the last words of the vision, but now something amazing, supernatural happens. Verses 12 through 15, Ezekiel is carried away. Then the Spirit lifted me up and I heard behind me a loud rumbling sound. May the glory of the Lord be praised in his dwelling place. The sound of the wind, the wings of the living creatures brushing against each other, and the sound of the wheels beneath them, or beside them, a loud rumbling sound. This is all tied to what we saw in chapter one: the four living creatures who hold up the expanse, who have wheels, and they go one way and another. The spirit then lifted me up and took me away, and I was in bitterness and in anger, in the anger of my spirit, with the strong hand of the Lord upon me. I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Abib, near the Kibar River, and there where they were living, I sat among them seven days, overwhelmed. In a supernatural way, the Spirit of God takes um, Ezekiel from where he is and takes him to another part. It's not that far away, it's still in, Bab in the Babylonian territory to a place called Tel Abib. We see something like this in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. 
where the, Philip, the evangelist, goes out and he meets the Ethiopian eunuch on the road to Gaza. And there he opens the scripture to him. The man is converted. Philip baptizes him. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus, which is Ashdod, and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So in the same way, that the Spirit took Philip from one place to another, the Spirit takes Ezekiel from one place to another. We are told that Ezekiel went in bitterness and anger in his spirit. Why bitterness and anger? Do we have to ask? He's been told several times that the people of Israel are stubborn, they are rebellious, they are obstinate, they do not listen to the word of the Lord, and they will not listen to what Ezekiel has to say. What What do you expect Ezekiel should feel? Here, Ezekiel, I'm commissioning, you're going to be a prophet, but no one's going to listen to you because they are rebellious. We're told that the strong hand of the Lord was upon him. The only way that Ezekiel can keep going is in the power of the Lord. It's not in his own strength. But when he is brought back to his fellow exiles, he sits among them for seven days and says nothing because he is overwhelmed by what he has seen, what he has heard, what he has eaten, and the commission that has been given to him. Verse 16. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, the wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways, he will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and does evil, and I put a stumbling block before him, he will die. Since you did not warn him, he will die for his sin. The righteous things he did will not be remembered, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you warn the righteous man not to sin, and he does not sin, he will surely live because ye took warning, and you will have saved yourself. Perhaps one of the more familiar passages from Ezekiel. And I think the message is quite clear. After all that Ezekiel has heard, there must be a strong temptation to say, yeah, I'm not going to do this. Okay, I'm not going to be a prophet. A little play on words. What profit is there in being a prophet if no one's going to listen to you? Why should I do this? For seven days, he sits on the ground just overwhelmed the task that God has given to him. Now there's a warning. It's like, I've made you the watchman. That is the person on the tower in a city to make sure to watch the horizon that no enemy is coming, no danger is coming. That's who you are, Ezekiel. And you know what? If you don't warn people, that's on you. I will hold you guilty for their blood. Their blood will be on your hands. You have to warn them. Now, if they don't, change, 
You've warned them. If they don't, then it's on them. But you have to warn them. You have to tell them the judgment, the punishment that is coming. One could be grateful that the Lord has not given a calling like this in our generation. Or has he? Has he? We live in a result-oriented society. Ezekiel is told there aren't going to be any positive results. People aren't going to listen. Verse 5 of chapter 2. Whether they listen or fail to listen, they will know that a prophet has been among them. You must speak my words to them. Whether they listen or fail to listen, they are rebellious. And then chapter 3, verse 7. The house of Israel is not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hardened and obstinate. The results are not Ezekiel's concern. He's been given a task. He is to live out the truth. He's to listen. They're not listening. He's supposed to listen. He's been given the words of God and he is to speak and he is to warn people. Now whether or not they listen, that's not on him. That's not him. He has to warn them. He has to warn them. As I said, we live in a result-oriented society. We think that somehow a ministry or a church or a person's personal witness is only validated when there are positive results. And I would say that's not the case. Because there is someone in the Gospels, like Ezekiel, who is called the Son of Man. That's Jesus. Unlike Ezekiel, he's perfect. He is the perfect living out of the truth. And so he had great results, right? Really? Thousands, thousands of people followed him. No. No. And in fact, what ended up happening was the people killed him. They crucified him. We should not have any expectation that if we live as Christians, if we live moral lives, if we do what is right, that somehow people will, they'll be changed, they'll be amazed at us. You're such a wonderful person. I want to be like you. Uh, Yeah, I wouldn't hold your breath. Wouldn't hold your breath. Ezekiel's told right up front, (laughs) they're not going to listen. I think perhaps we should be told up front that the majority of people aren't going to listen. They didn't listen to Jesus. I'm not Jesus. I'm not perfect. I am very much the son of Adam. If they didn't listen to Jesus, why should I have any expectation that they will listen to me? Oh, they might say, well, you know, that Damon, he's a nice guy. Good neighbor. We like him. But beyond that, no. We should, like Ezekiel, come to understand that we are to listen, we are not to be rebellious, and we are to warn the people around us. As Peter puts it, that when we are asked reason for the hope, we should answer with gentleness and respect. But Peter doesn't say, you know what, if you answer with gentleness and respect, then people will be converted. Hundreds, thousands will be converted. Mm -hmm. Probably not. 
The results are in God's hands. The God who is revealed in chapter 1 in all his majesty. He's the one who has called us to be his people. That's it. However that plays out, whether or not people are affected by our lives, by our witness, that's not our responsibility. We're not God. We are the sons and daughters of Adam. And we are to be faithful to what God has told us to do. And we leave the rest in his hands. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a time in which results seem to be everything. We want to be seen as successful. We don't want to be marked by that dreaded letter L as losers. And yet, I think an objective examination of Ezekiel would see him as precisely that. A man who would preach for at least 22 years and people would not listen. Or we look at the Lord Jesus who lived among us and ministered for three years or more teaching, healing people, raising the dead, feeding thousands. And yet the vast majority did not, they did not listen, they did not obey. You are the Lord God Almighty. You are the one who converts people, who changes people's hearts. That's not our job. Our calling is to be faithful, to be obedient to you, to love our neighbors as ourselves. The love of Christ might be seen to others. And if in your grace they come to faith, you are the one responsible, not us. We may become discouraged when we see ourselves surrounded more and more by those who aren't merely neutral about you, but have become hostile. Begin to hear the gospel as hate speech, who do not want to be told that in fact they are sinners. But we are to speak the truth in love we are to warn those around us. They may listen or not. We leave that in your hands. Again, on this day, we remember our mothers. Wonderful gifts from you. And we are grateful for them. And again, particularly for Lonnie, with us this year, Mother's Day a year after her diagnosis. We give thanks to you. All glory goes to you. Thank you for bringing us together. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.